From CPRI and the CPRI Knowledge Hub, this is Research Minutes, a weekly look at new and important research in education. Today, we look at EdTPA, a system of performance assessments used in nearly 20 states to determine if pre-service teachers are ready for the classroom. Candidates who meet or exceed the cut score can go on to teach, and those who don't are not permitted to seek their license and need to either retake the exam or give up on teaching. We welcome Rutgers University's Drew Jatomer and UCLA's Jose Felipe Martinez, co-authors of a new study examining the validity and reliability of the EdTPA system. They join CPRI Knowledge Hub Managing Editor Keith Hugh Miller to discuss their findings. What we do know is that the EdTPA does not offer appropriate estimates of reliability, precision, or decision consistency. And overall, the information that is offered is highly misleading and some important implications for education policy, practice, and future research. This is an area that is increasingly important from a policy perspective and that, in our estimation, remains uh, heavily understudied. That's right now on Research Minutes. Welcome to Research Minutes. I'm Keith Hummeller, Managing Editor of the CPRI Knowledge Hub. I have the pleasure of speaking with Drew Jatomer, the Rose and Nicholas DeMarzo Chair in Education at the Rutgers University Graduate School of Education. Welcome, Drew. Uh, thank you, Keith. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. And also, we're speaking with Jose Felipe Martinez, Associate Professor with the UCLA Graduate School of Education and Information Studies. Thanks for joining us, Felipe. Thank you, Keith. Happy to be here. So today we're discussing your new study, which was co-authored with Dan Beatty and Nora Hyland, titled Assessing the Assessment, Evidence of Reliability and Validity in the EdTPA. It was recently published in the American Educational Research Journal, and it takes a close look at the design and the reliability of the Educative Teacher Performance Assessment, or EdTPA. To start, Drew, could you just give us a quick overview of what the EdTPA is and how and where it's used in the U.S.? Sure. So NTPA is a program of complex performance assessments that are taken by teacher education candidates, and they're required for licensure recommendation in over 20 states. Uh, NTPA was originally developed by and for the teacher education community, and in 2013, an agreement was made with a test developer to provide a high-stakes commercial assessment to use as part of the licensure certification process. EdTPA actually isn't a single assessment, but it's 28 individual assessments for specific teaching fields. For example, elementary education, secondary English language arts, health education. And the assessments are designed, administered, and scored through a collaboration between SCALE, which stands for the Stanford Center for Assessment, Learning, and Equity, as well as Pearson Assessments. The candidates who take the assessments take select a multi-day instructional sequence, and they collect extensive evidence of their teaching, which can include lesson plans, classroom videos, assessments, and other materials. And they also do a considerable amount of writing to analyze and reflect on their practice. So they produce some 50 pages of text. All of this evidence forms the candidate's teaching portfolio, which is then scored by one or more trained raters. Scores then are assigned on a five-point scale on somewhere between 13 and 18 separate dimensions, 
on three broad domains, instructional planning, the instruction itself, and student assessment. Then states set cut scores that establish the minimum score in order to pass the assessment. And in most states, the cut score is the same across all the subject fields. Candidates who meet or exceed the cut score can go on to teach, and those who don't are not permitted to seek their license and need to either retake the exam or give up on teaching. Uh, it's uh, about 20 states that are currently using it, and last year, I believe, about 45,000 candidates took the assessment. So what was it that drew you to this study? Did you have concerns or questions about EdTPA or how it's used in initial certification for pre-service teachers? So it's a, it's a bit of an interesting story, I think. Uh, I'm on the Teacher Education Committee at Rutgers, and a major focus of the committee meetings over the last few years has been on the EdTPA. There have been a couple of factors that drew my attention to the assessment, and, and first was the sheer amount of effort that was required by the program the faculty, the students, to complete all of the requirements. And the second was the fact that I was hearing from some of my colleagues, people who I know are truly fine teacher educators, that the EdTPA scores didn't really align with their estimates of the teacher candidate's ability of the students that they taught. So that all caused me to pay a bit of attention, but it really didn't set off any alarm bells. What really got my attention and spearheaded the development of this paper more directly was a session at the meeting of the National Council of Measurement and Education in late spring of 2018. One of my students was going to give a talk in that session, along with others who were working in portfolio assessment. And included in that session was a talk by the UNED TPA by representatives of Pearson Assessments and SCALE. And, and again, these are the two organizations that lead the EdTPA work. The session was organized by my friend, colleague, and now co-author, Felipe Martinez, who's also on this podcast. So in preparing for the meeting, I was reading the session papers at home one night, and in reading the EdTPA paper, the numbers they were reporting, they, they just didn't add up. They, the authors were implying that the scoring of this complex performance assessment were incredibly reliable. Basically, it didn't matter who scored the assessment, you'd get the same score. Now, having been involved in this kind of work, I know the reliability of assessments like this is usually far lower. And so the results they were reporting were unusual, to say the least. So then I went to the EdTPA annual technical reports that are produced each year and realized they were, in fact, reporting the same information. And moreover, looking over the more technical details, a number of the approaches and formulas used seemed erroneous. So I went to the conference, and I sat in the audience, and at the end of the session, during the discussion part, I raised concerns to the presenters from the EdTPA group that their results were being misrepresented and that it was important to correct this, especially given the stakes involved for candidates and the fact that teacher ed programs were working very hard to meet the requirements of the assessment. After the session, I offered to continue discussion with the EdTPA leadership and help as much as I could to address these reporting issues. At that point, Felipe, I, and two of my colleagues at Rutgers decided to probe more deeply into what was being reported, and the result of that work is what was recently published. Well, I had not read the technical manuals before that session that Drew described in 2018. 
I was presenting results from my own work in other different types of portfolios with my colleagues, Matt Closer and Brian Stetcher. And in that work, we were showing reliabilities in the more familiar range for these kinds of things, um, 0 0.6s, 0 0.8, the usual t levels found with these things. During this session, when I, when I saw the results that the TPA team was presenting, I thought, wait, that's not, that's not the right formula for that. It, it looked like they weren't using the right formula. Uh, and so I quickly did uh, an estimation right there. And when it was my turn to present, I said something to the effect of, so these are reliabilities and they are what they are. But for the record, if we use those guys' formula, I can show you here that we too would get super high levels of reliability. I just don't think that that's a great way to do it. So your team did take a unique approach to identify characteristics like reliability, precision, and consistency in EdTPA assessments. Uh, Felipe, could you walk us through the questions you had and, and the methods that you used to answer them? Yeah. So before I describe the methods, it's probably important to say that our review and the eventual critique we're making of, of, of the assessment is not really ideological, at least we don't think so. We're not fundamentally opposed to the notion of teacher performance assessment, including for high stakes license or decisions, if that's the case. But we're educational measurement researchers, and so we take a, a narrower, but I, we think it's still critical, look into these issues. Um, and our point is that if these assessments are to be used for these types of purposes, then they need to be shown to satisfy some basic technical properties. Uh, to ensure that the decisions are reliable, precise, valid, what they need to be. And so we started from that very uh, basic notion and broad tenet of validity in educational measurement, that technical support is needed to support high-stakes uses of assessments. And to guide our uh, review or assessment of whether this was met in a TPA, we refer to the typical or the most common framework for this type of work, the standards of the ARA, APA, and NCME organizations for educational and psychological measurement. These are the most widely accepted sort of professional, these are the professional best practice standards or model in the field. And everyone agrees they are, including in this case, the developers of a TPA who list them prominently in their technical documentation. And so from that, our data collection analysis did not involve the usual you know, data in some kind of advanced statistical modeling tool or sophisticated psychometrics. It was essentially a review of the technical manuals and reports that uh, NTPA produces every year, describing the basic patterns of results and technical properties of their assessments, and sort of contrasting the evidence there to the guidelines and the the things that the standards would say would need to be, uh, the kinds of evidence would need to be offered as critical pieces of supporting evidence to demonstrate appropriate, again, reliability, precision, validity. We also added uh, a few simulated scenarios using data from one of our home institutions just to try to illustrate some of the potential issues and choices and consequences of the choices made. But by and large, it was a review of uh, published evidence by the developers um, and contrasting it to established professional standards. So from there, uh, I think we can jump right into your results. It looks like your team came away with some notable findings here. Yeah, we think we, think we did. Uh, the interested listeners should, should hopefully read the full paper. Um, we, we did try to write it so that it would not be highly technical and it would be accessible to the most relevant audiences here, which include policymakers and practitioners. 
Um, there are a number of key takeaways, we think. First, we need to know how reliable these scores are in general, in particular with respect to pass-fail decisions. Would the scores and decisions differ depending on who scores the assessment? How precise are the scores? We found that HCPA actually never addresses that fundamental question. Instead, they present a combination of statistics that we contend, we, we argue, are not standard for this type of, uh, of situation and are highly misleading uh, for the purposes at hand. You know, fabricated is a very strong word, but, but the fact is that uh, some of the coefficients uh, reported are in the documentation are simply not found in the literature. We can't find them anywhere else. And others can be found in other places, but are very clearly not appropriate for this context. And the common thread or the, the results of these choices uh, uh, is that they always result in coefficients that are very, very high above this kind of psychological barrier coefficient of 0.9 that is typically used as, as kind of like a, a rule of thumb for the reliability that is needed in high-stakes assessment. The choices of these not atypical coefficients result in those levels of reliability being reached, whereas the more common or more appropriate coefficients that we argue should have been used would have resulted in lower coefficients. So basically, this is leading the consumers and the decision makers here to believe that there is little or no uncertainty in the system when we suspect and our experience suggests that uh, um, this is unlikely to be the case. The second related point is how precise are the scores? Any assessment, uh, everyone listening probably knows, involves a degree of uncertainty and this uncertainty is characterized through various measures, most typically the standard of measurement. Very similar to an election poll where it said that a candidate has a certain preference of the vote, plus minus a margin of error, four points or whatever. That margin is a standard of measurement. In the case of ATPA, we again found a very unusual version of this statistic that is designed, it's designed for traditional multiple choice tests, the kind of test that is paper and pencil or computerized score, but it's score right or wrong. And that is entirely inappropriate in this case because it does not consider the possibility of human judgment error, which is very prominent in a TPA because this is being scored by humans, by trained raters. And so the kind of coefficient that is being reported with this logic, the precision would be exactly the same whether the portfolios are being rated by these thoroughly trained experts that, that, that are described in the literature or by a group of untrained adults recruited from the street. And that, that doesn't make sense on its face. Uh, the, the precision should depend on the process of measurement, and this is not reflected here. Third, we don't think this is a minor point to make. We don't think that it's reasonable, or at least not supporting the documentation, to have a single passing score for all fields in you know, CPA, all 28 assessments. Um, if you were to do that, you find that the passing rates are quite different. They differ dramatically sometimes across fields. Uh, for example, I don't know, 79% looking at here of middle childhood math uh, candidates would pass compared to about 53 of secondary math teacher candidates. So that's a very big difference and it would be defensible only if we have some corroborating evidence that indeed middle school math candidates are in fact more prepared to teach than secondary math candidates. And that is not the case. There's no such evidence offered. And that raises questions uh, that suggest that using the same casting score 
might not be justified and may may cause be cause for concern in terms of consistency and and fairness too. Yeah, so let me talk about a couple of other issues. For any assessment program, it's critical to examine the implications of an assessment for historically marginalized groups of examinees, particularly those groups that are underrepresented in the teaching force. Now, in our paper, we point out that African-American candidates are, are much less likely to pass the assessment and more likely to be misclassified in terms of passing status. And so that creates disparate access to the teaching profession. It's a critical issue, and the results are relatively discounted by EdTPA in their reports. Now, the points that Felipe made and, and, and this issue around differential performance are all highlighted in the paper. But we uh, discovered another problem that was particularly troubling uh, after, after publication. And I, it goes to this issue. When state policymakers are faced with decisions about whether to adopt an assessment, they typically rely on trusted authorities to evaluate the quality of the assessment. So the EdTPA technical reports, including the most recent one, state that all analyses and results have been informed and reviewed by a technical advisory committee of nationally recognized psychometricians. And they meet the technical standards for licensure assessments set forth by AERA, APA, and NCME standards that we referred to before. But based on confidential information we've received from multiple sources, we have very strong reason to believe this statement is highly misleading and that such regular reviews by experts have not, in fact, occurred as described. So it seems that there could be some significant implications to your work here, specifically in regard to education policy and even practice. But uh, before we discuss those, I just wanted to ask you, are there any limitations that listeners should maybe be aware of? Sure. I mean, the study is certainly limited by the fact that we did not have access to all of the EdTPA data. Virtually everything we report is based on what is available in the EdTPA technical reports. And as Felipe said, some data from one of our own institutions. What we do know is that the EdTPA does not offer appropriate estimates of reliability, precision, or decision consistency. And overall, the information that is offered is highly misleading. But because we don't have the data available to us, we can't say with any degree of certainty what the correct estimates actually are. Nevertheless, based on the available information and everything we know about these kinds of assessments, we're confident that the estimates presented are relatively meaningless and that the actual reliability, precision, and decision consistency is likely lower than implied. So it seems there could be some significant implications here, uh, specifically in regards to education policy. Drew, I'm curious what you think the implications of your work might be, particularly given the debates we so often hear about the merits of high-stakes assessment in teacher education. Well, one of the points we want to emphasize is that this critique is really not about the merits of high-stakes assessments in teacher education or even high-stakes assessments in general. There are always going to be strong views about whether or not to use these kinds of assessments, and we can think of these issues as ones of costs and benefits. What are the costs? Who pays those costs? And here we're not only talking about financial costs, what are the, and we also want to know what are the benefits and who benefits. So, for example, with the EdTPA, there are costs to the individual candidates in terms of test fees, but also the time and effort invested in preparing for and participating in the assessment and the stress caused by the possibility of not passing the assessment and thus not becoming a teacher. 
There are also institutional costs when programs are engaged in edTPA preparation at the expense of other valued efforts, or when preparation is focused on aspects of portfolio preparation that are unrelated to teaching. There may also be societal costs in discouraging otherwise qualified teachers, uh, including those from underrepresented groups from becoming teachers. But others point to what they see as benefits. EdTPA claims that there's potential to improve the quality of the K-12 teaching force by providing structured, supported opportunities for prospective teachers to develop their instructional skills. So that could be a benefit, though we should note that these claims of formative value, they've also been challenged by many in the teacher education community. But most significant for the high-stakes use of the EdTPA is that a standardized assessment can provide meaningful scores that can be used as a quality control measure to provide a gateway for admission into the teaching profession. For policymakers, the most salient benefit factor is the claim by the developers of EdTPA that the assessment is an authentic, objective, and reliable measure of teacher candidate readiness, and that can be used to inform licensure, accreditation, and program completion. But what we've found is that the purported benefits of the EdTPA are being misrepresented, which then distorts the decision-making of policymakers. Policymakers cannot address the consequences of measurement uncertainty because they are told that such problems don't even exist. They cannot use whatever value systems they bring to the table to weigh costs and benefits because the benefits are highly overstated and the costs in terms of inconsistent decisions are very much underestimated. So debates about high-stakes testing and who it costs and who it benefits need to continue. Research can help shed more and more light on how testing can help or exacerbate societal problems. But all of that works predicated on the fact that information about the assessments are conveyed in good faith. What we've seen with EdTPA is not something we've actually ever encountered in our experiences with high-stakes assessments. Uh, So my final question is for you, Felipe. Uh, Do you think that there are opportunities here for future research, either for you or for others who are working in this area? Yes, certainly. Um, There's a lot of research that can be done in this area. There are two obvious um, choices or areas where you can conduct research. One is to conduct a series of independent studies and analysis of the ATPA data to better understand its own measurement properties. And then eventually uh, undertake the necessary work to improve the quality where such improvements are needed. The test developers and the organizations that run the ATPA have collected a great deal of data uh, that can be used for studies like this. And, and, and they could inform a great effort to to strengthen the, the technical properties of the, an assessment that is de facto the most widely used uh, assessment for uh, entry into the education profession. Um, so that would be very important, both from a, a sort of policy and from a research perspective. And second, there's an opportunity here to significantly expand and broaden programs of research that are focused on the wider notion of uh, uh, assessing or measuring teaching. And here the ATPA could both contribute to and benefit from from that work uh, and from tying itself and helping uh, sort of promote that work that includes questions about teacher cognition, activities, teacher learning, preparation, of course, and teacher preparation programs, as well as questions related to more technical questions related to measurement, to how different measures can can or cannot inform policy, and on and on. Drew and I and our colleagues have been involved in this type of work for a long time. We will continue to do so, 
but there is certainly space for a lot more work by many more researchers. Uh, this is an area that is increasingly important from a policy perspective and that, in our estimation, remains uh, heavily understudied. Well, this is just fantastic work, and I would encourage all of our listeners to go and read the full article. Again, it's titled Assessing the Assessment, Evidence of Reliability and Validity in the EdTPA, and it was just published in the American Educational Research Journal. Drew Jatomer and Jose Felipe Martinez, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. For more episodes of this podcast, or to subscribe to the series, visit us at researchminutes.org. To share your thoughts on today's episode, or to suggest future topics, follow us on Twitter at CPRI Hub. That's C-P-R-E Hub. <laughs>